e longevity the home of space crypto and biotechnology discussion we're happy that you're here hello welcome to e longevity podcast i'm your host codename lou and as always i'm absolutely thrilled to be your guide on this exciting journey into the future of biotech, longevity science, space discussion, food production, longevity, anti-aging, all those things. Now in the past few episodes, we've delved deep into some truly pioneering work, unraveling how biotech is rewriting the rules of life and health. Our explorations have taken us from groundbreaking food production techniques to life extension in our beloved pets and even to the final frontier, space. Today, I wanna take a step back and reflect on those conversations, on the insights they brought us, and on the incredible potential they highlighted for the future of biotech and human longevity. But before we dive into that, I wanna talk about the driving force behind all these endeavors. The quest for e-longevity, for longer, healthier lives, It's not just about adding years to life, but adding life to our years. It's about a vision for humanity where we can live longer, healthier lives full of energy and full of potential. Is that a future that you want to be a part of? Is that the future that you want? Is that the future that you're creating? One of the pioneers in this field is Dave Goebel, a name that many of you have become familiar with. Dave is the co-founder of the Methuselah Foundation and has been proving pivotal in steering research and funding towards longevity and regenerative medicine. And that's why many of us, including myself, are even here. So we want to thank the Methuselah Foundation for the work it's doing. Thank the Methuselah Foundation for its stewardship with uh, Dojalon. Thank the Methuselah Foundation for providing a platform for all of us to speak on longevity and to be here as well. So thank you. Uh, just a little background, the Methuselah Foundation, um, you know, has been in existence since the, since the early 2000s. And its mission is to make 90 the new 50 by 2030. It's a bold mission. It's a bold mission, but it's not a dream. Through prizes and investments, they've been fueling the research that pushes the boundaries of our understanding of life and aging. And also been the the catalyst for this podcast as well, where we've learned so many things. So uh, I believe we all play a part in this movement in pushing biotech forward through discussions, by spreading awareness, by asking questions. We can all contribute to the shaping of the future of biotech. That's the way I see it. And our podcast is part of that endeavor, a way to uh, spread this knowledge and engage a broader audience uh, into these revolutionary ideas. Now, one of my favorite moments thus far has has been um, interviewing Dr. Artu Lukanen. I remember being completely fascinated by the concept of food production powered by solar energy and hydrogen. Let's take a look into a a few highlights from from that discussion. So 
What are the implications for a product like Soleen? You know, what will impact will it have on Earth and then in space? So, so our main mission here on Earth is is really to, you know, our, <laughs> the best spacecraft that we've ever built. Oh, well, we've never built it, but the best space, spacecraft that we've ever traveled on is the Earth. Uh, uh, it, it gives us everything we need, uh, but it's a, you know, it's a, it's a limited habitat. Uh, we're running out of space. We are running out of resources. And uh, we also have, you know, major challenges uh, with the planet when it comes to things like climate change and, and the, the way we emit uh, greenhouse gases. So, so the, the promise of Solene is the fact that it's uh, potentially basically a carbon negative way of making food. Um, if we make, okay, so what it needs, it needs the hydrogen. So if we make the hydrogen using renewable or CO2 free energy, we can make hydrogen without causing CO2 emissions. Uh, and that's the energy source for the bacterium. As I mentioned, the carbon source for the bacterium is CO2, which we capture from the air. So we're basically sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere and feeding it to the bacterium. Um, uh, so, so that gives the promise that it could be carbon negative. The other thing that's like super important is the fact that if you just compare from say kilowatt hours to calories, uh, just pure, just, you know, energy efficiency, the energy efficiency of uh, solene uh, uh, in, you know, making a kilogram of solene. So kilowatt hours to calories, it's about 120 times more efficient than an animal. Uh, and, and something like 20 times more efficient than a plant. So, so it, it is just a very, very energy efficient way of making food compared to, surprisingly, uh, uh, the, let's say, the old-fashioned, old-school, natural ways of, of producing proteins. Uh, but the reason is that, you know, nature hasn't optimized for energy efficiency. It's optimized for other things. Uh, but we have really optimized by technology uh, the process of actually growing a naturally occurring, non-genetically modified organism to grow like crazy and produce meat-like protein at the end. Uh, then the other things which are really important for sustainability and, and just, you know, being good tenants of our spacecraft uh, is the fact that we, uh, the solar production uses something like 0.1% of the water that you require to pr uh, grow one kilo of protein in comparison to livestock. Uh, water use and land use, about the same fraction, something like 0.1, 0.2% of, uh, of the water use or the land use. And the reason why we don't have this land use issue, uh, and this is actually quite important, <coughs> is the fact that, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, there is no agricultural input um, into the process. We are not feeding it sugars. If you are feeding if you're making protein with yeast, you, you basically need to feed it sugars. Uh, and if you need the sugar, you need the sugar canes. And you have a sugar cane farm somewhere. Um, so, so you don't need that. Um, uh, and, and another comparison would be against algae. So algae, like I mentioned, uses light to drive its metabolic machine. But the kilowatt hours to calories efficiency of algae is, is you, know, you know, it's several tens of times worse than for hydrogen oxidizing bacteria. So it's just a very efficient 
microbial machine of turning energy into protein. Definitely one of my favorite episodes thus far, our most recent episode on Soline. We encourage you all to tune in if you haven't already. Now, who could forget our conversation with Fanam Bagley, the space designer who took us on a journey that was both you know, out of this world, but also deeply grounded in practical design principles. It was a fascinating dive into the intersection of space, exploration, technology, and human living conditions as well. Let's take a look into that episode as well. I take away what you said that design really is a connector. It reminds you of like colors, for example, you put different things together, you blend them and it becomes something new. And I appreciate that you uh, approach design that same way. So let's transition into something else, into your TED Talk. You know, you had a TED Talk recently. What was that like? Was that nerve wracking for you? Tell us about that experience. <laughs> it was terrifying, uh, first and foremost. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a lot of pressure, right? Um, so um, earlier, Britannia uh, Zero Zero uh, call, um, asked me for, t- for two projects that are exciting. So I'm going to talk about the second project. So it was part of a... Um, a competition put together by NASA, the Canadian Space Agency, and Methuselah Foundation. And so basically the challenge was to figure out what and how we're going to feed astronauts who are going on the deep space mission, like like going to Mars, for example. So going to Mars is going to last between two and a half and three years uh, round trip. It's about 300 million miles away, one way. And during this time, you know, uh, We'll have to figure out the rocketry and, you know, the space module system and the life support systems. All that is going to be figured out. But um, unfortunately, one of the big issues that we don't have a solution for today is food. And a lot of people don't don't think it's it's that big of a deal, right? Uh, there, there are plenty of sci-fi um, movies that show you different forms of food or or that, that can be offered the astronauts, but you also have to think that food is related to mental health and, and physical health. And so what kind of food and variety of it is going to be suitable for people who are literally risking their lives for history, right? Um, and so the, based on that premise, you know, my team and I entered the competition and uh, we created what's called the Space Culinary Lab. And it's, it's nothing revolutionary in the sense that we're not creating new food. What we're doing is that we are taking different ways of creating uh, new ingredients and uh, mixing them together in a way that's pleasurable, right? The pleasure of food, of rituals, of culture, of desires, that's what, what was at the, at the center of, uh, of the way we designed this, this whole system. And so the TED Talk was really talking about the, the, the path we went through, where we ended up, and, uh, and, and the different solutions that we came up with. And just to give you a very high level you know, view of what it was, we, we had a, micro, a bioreactor for microalgae that uh, you know, grew micro, fresh microalgae, which has been shown in some papers that it might be useful for uh, radiation protection. We also have an aeroponic system that uh, offers fresh uh, greens. Um, so when you, when you interview astronauts that, you know, come back from long missions aboard the ISS, for example, one of the things they miss the most is the crunch of a salad. So that's really what we wanted to offer them. We also have a space barbecue, which, uh, <laughs> has become what we're well known for. 
And uh, the fun part is about the barbecue is that, as you know, real barbecue is done with open fire, but open fire is frowned upon in space. So we're actually using lasers to create artificial grill marks on top of your protein. So, uh, so yeah, lots of like solutions like this that are fun, but also bring a sense of agency to these astronauts that are that are on the line, right? Um, you know, you you know, a lot of people think about. Um, sustenance and and uh, nutrition and and things like that is is very important in food, of course. But then every once in a while, you and I and everybody else, we need some junk food. We need some pleasure food. We need some things that just bring us the comfort that we need and whenever we need it. Definitely an enlightening, enriching episode, and one that if you're creative or you're interested in design, I recommend you listen to as well too. And we'll just recap one last episode, um, one that, that really is close to my heart. And that's the episode with Aisha Akhtar, a co-founder and CEO of the Center for Contemporary Sciences. She's working to replace ineffective animal testing with superior human biology-based methods. And she's more than just a neurologist or a public health specialist. She's an artist as well, too. And she brings that artistry and that passion into our discussion, but also into her work. Let's, let's look into that. Um, yeah, so Aisha, you know, I think you're actually the first guest that we've had on that's um, really connecting longevity space and medical research and development with animals and human and animal rights and then also environmentalism with um, spark from the centers of contemporary sciences your organization which talks about um, pandemics and antibiotic resistance and then also um, the farmland and animals on farmlands Um, I guess as it relates to the longevity space Share, can you share with our listeners how those three components come together for longevity? Of course, yeah. So longevity isn't just about increasing our lifespan. It's about improving our life here on this planet while, we, while we're on it as well, right? Reducing our risk of disease. So when you think about what are the, some of the major threats we face right now, A, climate change and environmental destruction. We cannot, cannot deny that. That is a major threat, not only for humanity, but every other species pretty much on this planet, except for maybe mosquitoes, which are which are booming in, in this um, atmosphere. And B, the other major threat, um, and we just got the first taste of it, but another second major threat is pandemics. Pandemics are on the rise and it's on the rise truly because of human activities. And it's on the rise because of our destruction of habitats, which bring humans closer to wild animals, animals which we normally don't normally interact with on a daily basis. So that can lead to a greater risk of spillover of infectious diseases from other species into humans. We have a greater risk of pandemics from the wildlife trade, where we ship animals around the globe to use as exotic pets for zoos, circuses, um, for laboratories, for exotic food, so on. And that also is, is, is increasing our risk of um, encountering new infectious diseases. 
And a third big reason why we have such a high risk of pandemics now is because of factory farming. In factory farming, you, which is where 95% of all animals raised for meat, eggs, and dairy are in factory farm or factory farm situations. And basically, you are crowding animals by the hundreds, sometimes thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands into a, a tight space, usually a shed, for example, when we're talking about chickens or turkeys or pigs. And there's crowded it's such stressful and distressful conditions. So basically, these animals are sick all the time. And that also means that their immune systems are down. You know, when, when we get sick, right, when we're stressed or distressed, we're more likely to catch a cold because it's our immune system gets a hit when we're stressed out. And that happens with other animals too. So you've got this double whammy situation in factory farms. Animals are so crowded, which stresses them out and brings their immune systems down, makes it easier for them to catch infectious diseases. And of course, because they're so crowded, it's easier for them to catch it from each other and pass on a virus down the road. And each time a virus passes on to another animal, it can mutate to a very deadly form. So that's why there's a lot of concern right now about the bird flus and swine flus that are running amok in factory farms. So that's a number two threat for human health, right? That's a threat that can decrease our, our lifespan and also um, worsen our lives. Even if we survive these kinds of threats, we, we still face a lot of diseases as a result of climate change, environmental destruction, and factory farming or pandemics. And then of course, the third arm in all of this is medical research. So we have these big threats to humanity and pretty much all other life on the planet. So we need the best medical research we can to not only combat these new threats that are coming about, but also to combat the, all the other diseases we face and to help improve our life and improve our lifespans. So we work on all fronts um, at Center for Contemporary Sciences to basically reduce and minimize the threats to healthy lifespan and improve medical research so that we can improve our health through better therapeutics and um, better vaccines. Wow. I mean, there's so many things for us to consider. It's not just about us living lo as long as we can, because who wants to live as long as they can and have a, a super low quality of life? It's about enjoying our life. But not just us enjoying our life, we literally cannot live without other beings on this planet as well. You know, they help us in so many ways uh, in agriculture and, and so forth. So can you um, speak to the link between um, and not just the reduction of suffering for animals, but why it's important for us to stop using animals in testing? Yeah, absolutely. And so... You know, we, we talked a little bit about how I got into this issue in the first place, and I always was so upset about the suffering animals experience, and I've been exposed. I've seen them in laboratories mm -hmm. throughout my career. I've seen the animals in laboratories. I've seen what happens to them. I've also seen things from the human health side. So at my in my 10 years at the Food and Drug Administration, I saw drug after drug come through the pipeline that people were very excited about, thinking 
this drug is going to be the big breakthrough for stroke. This is going to be the one that's going to treat spinal cord injury and so on. We, if people would get so excited about a drug only to see it fail when tried in humans. And we saw this again and again, and it finally came out, and this is pretty well known now, that despite the fact that FDA requires all drugs, still requires all drugs and vaccines to be tested on other animals before they can proceed to human clinical trials, 90 to 95% of all drugs and vaccines that actually are found safe and effective in animals fail in humans and they fail because they are unsafe or they don't work in humans. So it's a huge, I mean, think about that, 95% failure rate. I mean, that's absolutely ridiculous and that's mm -hmm. mind boggling. What other industry accepts a 5% success rate? No industry accepts that, but for some reason this has been accepted when it comes to the safety and efficacy of the very drugs and vaccines we put into our own body. In addition to the, that failure rate, there is an incredible concern now, or a major concern, that we may have missed out on really good drugs, really drugs that may have been incredibly effective, maybe even cures, but they were never allowed to move past the pipeline because of results in animals that would not have applied to humans. So when you think about animal testing is so non-predictive of human results, not only at the end phase of the drug development process, but also at the earlier phase in drug development process. A lot of drugs never had the chance to even move through the pipeline because of results in animals that would not have applied in humans. So there is a very likelihood that there were drugs that we abandoned that would have been wonderful for a host of diseases that we face. The good news is that despite this incredible high failure rate, or because of it, I would say, there's been a real boon in a new industry in medical science and a new boon in an industry which I call the human relevant industry. Basically, there's been a development of testing methods now that have been coming out that are based on human biology. So they're very, um, they're, um, they, they're much more complicated, complex models that really capture human physiology, um, basically the human body. And so I call them human relevant because they're relevant to our species. You know, they're not um, specific, they're not relevant to a mouse's body or a cat's body or, or a monkey's body, but they're relevant to the human body. So they're human relevant. So as you can see, We've been hard at work at the eLongevity podcast. Looking forward, we're excited to bring even more innovative thinkers and explorers to our eLongevity family. But as always, our exploration will not be limited just to these topics. We want to aim to cover a vast spectrum of biotech, but also in, in self-development as well, too. But here's where you come in. We want to hear from you, our listeners, about the topics or the guests that you may be interested in. Do you have questions about the future of biotech? Do you want to hear from specific experts? Drop us a line, send us a tweet, get in touch with us, because this is your show, not just ours. So thank you once again for being part of the journey. Biotech is shaping our future in ways that we can hardly imagine, and there's so much more to discover together. So until our next episode, keep on dreaming and questioning, and remember, the future of longevity is in our hands. Good night.